While there is a minuscule minority that operate outside the cultish tenets of evangelical homeschooling and choose homeschooling for reasons beyond religious indoctrination, an overwhelming majority do it for exactly that purpose. Homeschoolers throughout the United States are at this very moment somewhere indoctrinating, undereducating, and abusing their children while at the same time acclimating them to a particularly dangerous pocket of evangelicalism that is ranked with some of the most notorious hate-mongering, government hijacking, racist, homophobic sacks of shit in the business. These people truly believe that by hijacking their children's education, they're going to somehow achieve widespread influence on how education is done. The way they go about it is so fundamentally fucked up. It's like anything else in this religion. It is morally abhorrent, damaging to the individual, and dangerous to the intellectual and emotional well-being of the victims. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That verse is a paraphrase of Isaiah 52.11, and the language of that verse is even more pointed. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it, Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. In the context of our conversation tonight, that sounds really, really sinister. Mm. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we are finally tackling the subject of homeschooling, particularly evangelical homeschooling, because there are other flavors out there, some of which are definitely legitimate and have measurable benefit to the student. But for an overwhelming majority of students stuck in the cloister of American homeschooling, the story is much less positive. I'll be honest, when I began researching this subject, even I was shocked by just how deep and dark this particular rabbit hole actually goes. It was difficult going through all the seedy corridors and finding the monsters lurking behind the corners, but we're going to expose them tonight, and I hope that what we have to say serves as a warning for why we so desperately need structured, secular education in this country, even with its many and obvious flaws still intact. We will have much, much more to say about this in a few minutes. But first, I don't need your money, but I'll take it. <laughs> gay, gay, go away, and how not to advance critical thinking. In a Christian's Behaving Badly segment, I'm dubbing Fear and Loathing in Pensacola and Beyond Edition. <laughs> Shell, what have you got for us this week? Well, first up, we have classic Christians Behaving Badly. The Christian in question is evangelist Andrew Womack. As we have observed in previous segments, the grift goes on and on and on. And on and on and on, yes. He was speaking recently at the 2023 Gospel Truth Conference in Florida when he said he doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it. After all, God provides him with enough cash to maintain a lifestyle worth $11,000 an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. Whew, sounds like God is a generous employer. You'd think this guy would be satisfied. You would think. Hmm, but he's still gonna take your money. Because of course he is. Even if he doesn't 
need it because that's how you get blessings from God. You give money to rich dudes who come to your church bragging about how they don't need your money. Yeah, that's how it's done. Yeah. During his speech, he told this particular story. There was a woman that came up during the altar call, and she said, do you remember me? And I didn't remember her, but she reminded me that the previous year, she was let out of a mental institution to come to church on a Sunday. This is starting out well. Mm. And she says, I need some money. And I had just talked on this passage of scripture that I shared with you. So I said, what do you have? And she made the connection. She knew what I was going to do. So she went and got her purse, and she had a little coin purse, and she counted it out, something like $78.35, something like that. And I said, give it to me. And she said, all of it? And I said, all of it. And I took my hands like this, and she's probably holding it cupped out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I took every penny that woman had. And you're bragging about it. I know. fucking asshole. It's like awful. She said that she wasn't going to get paid for a week and she didn't have groceries. And I said, give me all of it. And for some reason, this seems to make him a man of God. Well, this God. (laughs) And let's be fair. These people are definitely out on the fringes. Mm -hmm. And even your average evangelical would say that he's full of shit. Yeah. But... I'm sorry, a lot of the things that these people do fall in lockstep with what I would imagine Yahweh doing in the same circumstances. So mm. He explained that this was seed money and that God would multiply that many times over in return for her devotion. Of course he did, because that's their entire platform right there. There's, yeah. They're all such one-trick ponies. It's like, give me the last penny that you have and then believe it's going to come back to you. Lomax said that the following week, a random stranger gave that woman a used car. The woman's estranged mother invited her to move in, and she found a new job that paid twice as much as the mental health facility. As will surprise no one at all, there is no way to corroborate this story. Shocking. The woman remains unnamed if she ever existed at all. That's not unusual for Womack, though. He previously claimed he raised his own son from the dead, that a baby was raised from the dead during a large conference, though there was no video of the incident. Of course there wasn't. That a different baby was also raised from the dead, that his wife was raised from the dead, and that he prayed away the mildew in his home. You know, well, that last one, I'm sure he could have cleaned it, or maybe his wife did. That's as good as praying it away. It's surprising how it just gets done. I seem to remember going into the Christian bookstore when we were both in school and seeing books on sermon illustrations where they'd have all these stories that you could tell from the pulpit to make your point. And I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if you could find this or a variation of this. Oh, yeah. Or several variations of this story. Oh, yeah. I mean, they they all copy each other, too. So you don't even have to go to a book. You know, you just listen to one of these yahoos for a few weeks, and you're going to get all the ideas that you could possibly want or need to be able to fleece your own flock, too. And just the repetitive nature of this guy's claims, he he seems to think or know, I mean, let's, let's be real here. These people are brilliant marketers. So he probably knows that the people who are his own adherents are going to respond well to stories about people being raised from the dead. So now, you know, pretty much every person this guy comes into contact with has either been raised from the dead or he raised them from the dead. It's just, 
It's amazing how they latch on to these things and just run with them. And people never question why, if this happened in a huge conference, why was there no video? Why didn't local news media get involved in oh, this? Seriously. Why was none of this ever reported? You know, I have the same questions about Jesus. Why is it that not a single reputable historian of the time ever had anything to say about him? No. But you know what? If people can believe in this without any kind of tangible proof, mm. then of course they're going to believe stories like this and not question why there wasn't even so much as a fucking video yeah. to corroborate this. Mm. I feel bad for the people that waste so much of their time and so much of their lives and so much of their money yeah. supporting these people. But there is counterpoint out there and the voice of reason does exist. <laughs> so, you know, at least there's that. At least I take solace in that, and I take solace in being part of that. So we've got uh, just two more kind of shortish ones here. Yeah. These last two stories have everything to do with the number one method of attracting and keeping believers with these evangelicals. Fear. Oh, that's a biggie. Yeah, it is. The King's Singers, an a cappella group that started at King's College in England, has been doing a tour in America and Canada this year, and they had planned to go to Pensacola Christian College on one of their first tour stops to give a performance as part of their fine arts series. All seemed to be going forward smoothly until suddenly, two hours before they were to perform, while they were on campus setting up and warming up for the performance, the event was canceled. Why? because a student looked up the group and discovered, much to his shock and dismay, that one of the singers is openly gay and talks about it on Instagram. Oh, my stars and garters! There's more of that Christian love and acceptance that we know so well. Yes. The student brought it to the attention of a dean who checked up on it and decided that it would be against God to have a group sing for them where one is gay. Do they think it's catching? Well, some of them actually do. I That's know. the crazy part. Some of them actually do. But here's an idea. Why don't you just vet the groups that you book to do these events at your school ahead of time yeah. instead of leaving it up to one of your students going on Google and finding out that uh, one of the guys likes guys. It's just elementary procedure as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. A few days after this, the King's Singers released a statement. We were deeply saddened that our concert at Pensacola Christian College was canceled at two hours' notice on Saturday, February 11th. The school gave its reasons for cancellation as concerns expressed about the lifestyle of members of our group. It has become clear to us from a flood of correspondence from students and members of the public that these concerns related to the sexuality of members of our group. We have performed at Pensacola Christian College before, and we entered into the engagement in the knowledge that this is a fundamentalist Christian institution. Our belief is that music can build a common language that allows people with different views and perspectives to come together. If they're not evangelical. Uh-huh. If, if some of those people are not evangelical, sure. Yeah. This is the first time that anything other than bad weather, the pandemic, or war has caused a concert cancellation in our 55-year history. We are disappointed not to have been able to share our music and our mission of finding harmony with over 4,000 students of the college and the wider Pensacola community. We hope that any conversations that follow might encourage a greater sense of love, acceptance, and inclusion. What a nice way of saying these people are a bunch of assholes. Yeah. 
it's it's a very diplomatic way of conveying that sentiment and doing it while maintaining the high ground. Absolutely. I oh, love that little statement there. Yeah, definitely. Pensacola Christian College is the sort of school that makes the word petty into an art form. This is the school that edits their art history textbooks with black sharpie to cover up such immodesty as the Mona Lisa's cleavage and admonishes their female students escaping a burning building to make sure they're sufficiently covered up in order that their male students are not tempted by the ladies' PJs. That's amazing. There's a fire in the building, but let's make sure that we aren't causing our brothers to stumble. <sighs> Even even if it means that we burn alive in our effort to uh, to cover up, and seriously, the Mona Lisa's cleavage. Yes. If you're being turned on by that, if that's something that's a stumbling block for you, I'm sorry. You need therapy. You need help, and you need it now. Okay. Even in the last couple of weeks, I've seen and heard some very silly shit that comes out of evangelicalism, but this is just so petty and ridiculous that I'm. The spider's lost for words. <laughs> I mean, the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa. We're going to get up in arms about the Mona Lisa and basically call it porn. Yeah. That's just, well, that's just very evangelical now, isn't it? Several of the more accepting students have stated on social media how ridiculous this is. Of course, at this point, the school had to respond. Pensacola Christian College is a religious liberal arts institution founded upon and guided by the Bible, as reflected in our Articles of Faith. The college cannot knowingly give an implied or direct endorsement of anything that violates the Holy Scripture, the foundation for our sincerely held beliefs. At the same time, the college also recognizes everyone is created in the image of God and should be afforded the dignity of kindness. So kindly let them perform, you fucking idiots. <laughs> PCC canceled a concert with the King's Singers upon learning that one of the artists openly maintained a lifestyle that contradicts scripture. The highly talented musicians were treated with dignity and respect when informed of the cancellation. The artists stated their understanding and acceptance of the change and were given full remuneration. Well, that's something. Yeah. But the rest of that is bullshit. Well, no shit. I mean, you you cannot, what, what does it say here? You cannot do something like this and posture it as being with dignity and respect. No. You just can't. There's nothing dignified or respectable about letting a group cross an ocean to perform for your students and yeah. then while they're setting up, tell them that they can't because mm. of your own homophobic agenda that permeates way, way, way too much of your thought processes. Mm. Why do you spend so much goddamn time thinking about what happens in other people's bedrooms? Yeah. Why? What is the point? How does it impact your life? And no, it may not be Christian, but there are a lot of things out there that aren't Christian. And there are a lot of things that you support that aren't Christian. So why can't you just let this guy sing? I know. What power does it give you to tape his mouth shut because he likes other guys? What power do you gain from that? And what do you really think it makes you look like? Yeah. Dignity and respect my ass. Mm -hmm. This is just ridiculous. So we got one more here. More of this amazing evangelical perspective on life with this last one. Yeah. So um, how are we rounding this out tonight? 
Well, lastly, a proposed bill in Minnesota pretends that they want to advance critical thinking skills in their schools. But since this is the Christians behaving badly segment, that's actually not what they're trying to do. They're actually trying to insert Christianity into science classes, as usual. The bill being put forward by Republican State Senator Glenn H. Gruenhagen seems innocuous at first, stating that they want their students to understand the science behind sickness and death until you actually read the bill. Here's the key paragraph. To advance critical thinking skills in history and science, a school district must provide instruction to students in grades 9 through 12 exploring the contrast between the scientific facts on how sickness, disease, pain, suffering, and death relate to the existence of complex living organisms and how sickness, disease, pain, suffering, and death are a consequence imposed by the creator of complex living organisms. Oh, Jesus Christ. You had it right with the first half. I know. It's like, you just needed to delete that second half. Oh, absolutely. And everyone listening to the podcast just face palms and bonks their heads on the desk. (laughs) He thinks sickness and disease are the result of God punishing us, not germ theory or viruses. Of course not. Grunhagen doesn't actually care about scientific facts or theories. The good thing, though, is that Democrats currently run the Minnesota branches of government, so the bill, which had a similar iteration last year, isn't likely to go anywhere, but it certainly gives an idea of what the conservatives are focusing on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the key problems with the subject we're going to tackle tonight. Yeah. But it's nice to know that there are some places where it's not quite so easy to slip this shit in under the radar Mm. and just cry Jesus as the reason for needing it. So there is that. So before we delve into this subject that I'm just going to put it out there, it was difficult to research and put together. But uh, the bottom line is that we need to talk about it. So I'm going to stall for just a couple of minutes here before we get into the meat of this and probably take a few deep breaths before I start (laughs) to let you know that next month's topic is going to be no easier for me to research and put together. We're going to be talking about uh, Japuza, Jesus People USA, and the problem of evangelical sex abuse. And we're going to use this nefarious organization as the foundation, but we're going to be looking beyond it a little bit more, too. And I'm really starting to wonder whether or not this is going to be a one or two parter. Yeah. Because there's a lot here. Mm-hmm. But we're going to see how it rolls. I do have about a month to get this together. We're going to be doing this. I don't have a set date for it, but it's going to be one Sunday in March yeah. that we put this out. Probably the last Sunday in March is what I'm going to shoot for with this. Also, just so everybody's aware, we are taking next week off. I have an opportunity to do a little something for me, and I'm going to jump on it. I'm going to be out of town next weekend. We are starting off with a road test, and then I'm going to hightail it to New York for a little fun with some friends from back in the day (laughs) who still talk to me. Yes. (laughs) And we're going to have a good time, but we will be back in two weeks with another Christians Behaving Badly, and we look forward to bringing that to you. I'm looking forward to my break and, (laughs) and a little bit of time with some friends, so... That's where the spider is going to be next week. I've been having some issues uploading show notes 
to the website that hosts the podcast. And I've I've been in this spot before, and I'm not quite sure what the problem is or what the solution is. I'm working on it. If you're looking for show notes from the last few weeks, they will be up as soon as I can put them up. And I really do hope that we get this resolved for this episode. With a topic like this, it's really, really important to be transparent. And I want you to see where all the information comes from. So bear with us. We're working on this, trying to figure out why we're having so much trouble updating that part of the website. And as soon as I have that resolved, then all the show notes from all the previous episodes that are not there now are going to be there. So just bear with us. They're coming. Now, time permitting, I also want to do another movie episode soon. I'm thinking maybe somewhere mid-April, we're going to tackle Jesus Camp. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) But I really do think that especially on the heels of this, it's been on my mind a lot. Because the way that these people manipulate children and use them as pawns in their game is disgusting. And I really want to look at this movie the way that we always do, vile scene by vile scene, and explain just what's wrong with all of it. (laughs) So that's kind of on my radar. I'm not exactly sure when we're going to do it. All I know is that it takes less prep to do the movie episodes, and people like them. So I want to try to sneak one of those in there for you within the next probably six weeks or so. And I'll know a little bit better. Once I'm back from my little break and I regroup a little bit, I'll know a little bit better how I want to proceed with that. But that's kind of what's on deck for right now. And we're going to continue bringing you our Christians Behaving Badly episodes every week. And thank you again for coming back week after week. And we're glad that we can be here for you week after week again. I think that things are working out well. We're getting a lot of downloads on those episodes. People are liking them. I think they like the shorter form thing that we're doing with uh, Christians Behaving Badly. But I also think that people get a lot out of these more in-depth episodes too. Mm -hmm. And with only one a month that I have to uh, research and process, I think that we are putting together something that's very substantive and that you're going to enjoy. So instead of talking about it like that, let's just get right into it. So before we even delve into evangelical anything about this, I found this quote from Harvard Law Professor Elizabeth Bartholet about homeschooling. Here's what she has to say. If we look at what goes on in other countries, the U.S. stands out as the anomaly. When other countries allow homeschooling, they regulate it much more strictly. They demand that parents show that they are qualified to teach and that they turn in the curricula that they plan to use. Other countries impose home visit requirements, which are both a protection against child maltreatment and also a check on whether the parents are actually providing the education that they say they are. They also mandate that the homeschooling curriculum provides an education equivalent to public education and includes teaching about the fundamental values of our society. Some countries like Germany effectively ban homeschooling altogether. In the U.S., there is essentially no effective regulation. And let me interject something here. Everything that she talks about in that paragraph applies to my driving school. Yeah. Okay? So driving schools have more oversight than parents who homeschool their kids. Yeah. There's none of this with homeschooling. My school, my driving school, is subject to each and every one of the things that are in that list. Yeah which 
is just, it's bad shit. It's absolutely bad shit. Not that I get audited or that I'm held to certain standards and ways of doing things. That's just fine. I think that that's necessary. But what's bad shit is that the same state that mandates all of this for a driving school doesn't have the balls to mandate it for their public school system. And that, to me, is very problematic. Now, needless to say, evangelicals in particular seize on the opportunity to benefit from our government's quiet non-involvement in this process. And we'll answer the question, how, as we go. Now, here's a little history lesson for you. Homeschooling has been practiced in America since at least the 17th century, when Europeans began colonizing and settling in North America. Homeschooling then was the result of a lack of public education infrastructure. So, Parents who could do the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, took it upon themselves to see to it that their children learned these vital skills. Those who couldn't or had money to spend on their kids' education and didn't want to be bothered typically hired tutors to do it for them. The term homeschooling was actually coined sometime in the 19th century when public education became more the norm. But as early as the 1600s, we had laws in America that mandated that children have access to public education. Oddly enough, it was the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the lovable scamps responsible for America's first widespread satanic panic vis-a-vis the Salem witch trials, that first drafted laws decreeing that towns with 50 or more families had to have established elementary education services. But there's a plot twist. Back then, the primary purpose of establishing public education was really not much more than a plot by the Puritans to make sure children could read the Bible and receive formal indoctrination by way of religious instruction. So that was their real purpose there. In case you had any notion that there was something heroic about this, (laughs) no, it was just as subversive as anything else that they did. So from the 1600s forward, new laws and regulations emerged for the governance of public education. In 1790, Pennsylvania became the first state to socialize public education free of charge for those who couldn't pay. By 1817, the city of Boston officially made public education free using tax revenues to fund it and provide it free to all children within and within a decent radius of the city limits through early adolescence. Usually that meant eighth grade. Now, fun fact, public school and high school in particular used to be pay as you go in the U.S. This was true in some places clean into the mid 20th century. More fun fact, you actually got what you paid for. Your public education provided the same level of instruction that you have to go through two years of community college on top of high school to get today. And even then, I don't think that it's as comprehensive. No, it's not as thorough. No. For a long time in our country's history, you only advanced past eighth grade if you were significantly gifted or had plans to pursue professional vocations and careers like doctors and lawyers and the like. And if you couldn't pay for it, well, here's hoping your parents could read or you had relatives to teach you the basics because those were the only alternatives. The next century saw educational law reform from birth to adolescence. In 1790, the state of Pennsylvania made public education free for poor students with the understanding that wealthy families would continue to pay their way. Then, in 1817, the city of Boston decided its public primary schools would be funded by tax dollars rather than through the pockets of the affluent. The first official city-funded public school in Boston opened its doors in 1820. So, for a few more decades, 
A child's education, or lack thereof, was determined by the parents, but there were those forward-thinking law and policymakers who understood that if our society was going to advance significantly, people needed to be formally educated. So, sometime in the 1850s, many states and localities implemented truancy laws that made it mandatory for elementary-age students to attend public school, beginning, once again, right here in the good old Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Over time, the rest of the states followed suit with Mississippi bringing up the rear but also mandating compulsory public education in 1917. By the time truancy laws were set in place, public education was more legit, not a vehicle for religious indoctrination, like the Puritans wanted. It was at that point that the actual flip took place and public education became a means of ensuring literacy and teaching core subjects like language arts, history, math, and science. Yes, even science. Take that, Puritans. And the sentiment became, we'll teach them to read, but you can supply the Bibles at home. That was basically what happened there. Instead of merging state-run schools with religious education, truancy laws drew a line in the sand with separation of church and state. The mid-19th century then saw the establishment of the U.S. Board of Education. At that point, most parents decided it was a better idea to leave formal education to the professionals. Smart move. Mm. So, with the rise in accessible and compulsory public education came the significant decline of homeschooling, but it remained legal in many places and remains an option in the vast majority of places in the U.S. to this day. Now let's fast forward to today. While there is a minuscule minority that operate outside the cultish tenets of evangelical homeschooling and choose homeschooling for reasons beyond religious indoctrination, an overwhelming majority do it for exactly that purpose. Homeschoolers throughout the United States are at this very moment somewhere indoctrinating, undereducating, and abusing their children while at the same time acclimating them to a particularly dangerous pocket of evangelicalism that is ranked with some of the most notorious hate-mongering, government hijacking, racist, homophobic sacks of shit in the business. Names like James Dobson and Bill Bright, just to name two, and we will name more. Now, most of the public reasons why people opt for homeschooling are reactionary in nature. They fear that their kids will be exposed to things like drugs and sex and other forms of negative peer pressure. Evangelical homeschoolers project largely unfounded notions of how bad things are in public schools. The sad part is that many of them know they're full of shit, but they also know that the only way to keep their kids from wanting to go to school like other kids and keep them tethered to this totalistic hell that they're trapped in is fear. And let me tell you, the reasons that I heard when I was younger for homeschooling were just ridiculous. And uh, I won't go into specifics because I don't know if these people even listen. And, you know, they're going to know that they're being called out without me calling them out. So I'm just going to say that there were people that I knew back in the day that held some very, very wigged out ideas of what was going on in public schools and literally sat there right in front of me telling me about things that happened in my school that never happened. You know, we're talking about constant fights, uh, fights between teachers and students, and the phrase blood in the halls was one that really, I mean, I offended somebody because as soon as the words blood in the halls came out of her mouth, and it was too much. And I had no, I had no warning that anything that ridiculous was going to be said. And I let out a chuckle. 
And yeah. that completely, I don't even want to say changed because I don't think that she really had that high of an opinion of me to begin with. But that didn't help. No. So all of this alarmist thinking that comes out of homeschoolers, there are reasons for it. And none of them are really based in reality. Um, I will admit that things are a lot different today than they were even when I was in high school. Some of the fears that I've heard homeschoolers express have definitely been actualized with the rise in things like school shootings and diminished forms of discipline. I mean, even I was fearful of the things that could happen when my son was in school, but I also knew that I couldn't do better in terms of his education. Even if Liam had proved to be neurotypical, I knew that I couldn't do better. Right. So there's the rub, you know? Mm -hmm. And yes, I was nervous. Especially once he got into high school, I was very nervous because when you are living in a society where there is more than one mass shooting per day, it's a legit fear Yeah, because that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town until it does. Yeah, And I get that. I really, really do get that. But when you look at it in terms of law of averages and some of the stories that we're going to tell you a little bit later, a high school classroom is exponentially safer than someone's living room. Okay, yeah. so that's a little bit of food for thought on that. And I'm going to get into the why of that a little bit later, too. But there are there are definitely things that bother me about public education today. I've talked mm-hmm. about some of them on the show before. Oh, yeah. But there is the whole business of a lack of proper literacy training. I mean, we still teach kids to read, but right. we've kind of stopped teaching them to write, yeah. at least to the point where they can write in cursive. I don't know when this happened. I know it it was a while ago now. Liam started to learn cursive, and then it just stopped. It just went away. It was like in third grade or something. So, I mean, early mid-00s, it sounds like, is when this started to kind of taper off, which I still don't understand. It's like, what happens when these people have to sign for a mortgage? I I don't understand how you can just eliminate this from the curriculum. And I've had conversations with people about this one. Whenever a student gets in the car with me, I can tell almost instantly which ones go to public school and which ones go to private school because private schools still teach these things. Private schools, Catholic schools, they still teach these things. Catholic schools for good or for bad. They're they're still doing a better job in this arena Mm -hmm. than the public schools are. And how I can tell is that when they sign in on our sign-in sheets for their lessons, there are those that will either just print where they're supposed to sign or they'll just scribble because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And then there are the ones that have this really nice penmanship Mm -hmm. and can sign their names in cursive. So we know that their parents are spending money for them to actually get an education. And I think that it sucks that you have to shell out, in some cases around here, 35 to 50 fucking grand a year just so that your kid can be functionally literate when they leave school. I think it Mm -hmm. sucks. It does. Another problem that I have is the softening of language surrounding disciplinary procedures. Yeah. Um, Let me tell you, when I was working as a substitute teacher in this school district, I was appalled at how they, they go out of their way to soften the language of things. And I may have mentioned this before. I'm going to go through it really, really quickly. But in this school district, we don't have in-school suspension. No, we have the Student Services Center. So, okay, 
disrupt everybody else's learning process to the point where we have to take you out of that environment for a day and come to this room so we can serve you. Give me just a small break. Our school district does not have detention. Oh, no. It's referred to as sessions. They won't use the word detention, okay? We have sessions, and that is what they, uh, they call detention around here. And a session involves about 30 minutes of detention so that you miss the bus in an area where more than half of the kids walk. So who gives a shit? Yeah. It's not going to impact them the way that they think it is. And there's only one legit day of detention in this district every week. And they call that Thursday school. <laughs> no, Thursday school is what happens between 720 and 159. Okay, that's mm-hmm. Thursday school. What happens from 159 to 430, that's detention. Start calling it that again mm-hmm. and watch what happens. No. And then there's the softening of actual consequences for bad behavior. I mean, I could I could go on about this for an hour, but I just gave you a little snippet. A 30-minute detention, and then you walk home and your parents are none the wiser. You know, it makes absolutely no sense. And I saw many, many, many examples of this that just made my blood boil. It's like, are we supposed to be teaching these people or not? But it's still the better option over what we're talking about tonight. And that's the real scary part. All of these things together still don't distract from the fact that teaching our kids things like morality and spirituality are the direct responsibility of parents, not teachers. And even though our public school system leaves a lot to be desired, it still does a better job of equipping students for success far more than the average parent can. So they're not doing a whole hell of a lot, but at least they're providing a foundation of education that no homeschooler is going to get because of the agenda behind it. Now, before we get into this whole vilification thing over homeschooling, let's talk about some of the benefits because they are there. Academic flexibility is one of the benefits of homeschooling. You get truly individualized education, not an IEP that still largely forces square pegs into round holes. Mm. And it does. I mean, there were issues with Liam's education, even with an individual education plan. Yeah. Well, you can't really have a truly individual education plan when you put a teacher in a room with 10 other students at the same time. That's still not individual by any definition. Then there's the whole aspect of parent choice of pace and approach. You can choose your student's school schedule. No setting alarms for 6 a.m. if that kind of scheme isn't optimal for your student. Advancement through the grades is at the discretion of the parent, not a set of arbitrary numbers that increase or decrease funding based on a student's success. This was another one that really pissed me off when I was subbing. I was doing a long-term sub at one of our local high schools, and I had several students who were in failing category. And I remember giving a quiz where there were some students that got scores as low as 20, 18, and 12 on this quiz, which basically is them saying, I didn't learn Jack Q shit. Well, I was brought into a meeting with the head of the English department and was told we need to give these kids 65s. And I said, why? They didn't earn a 65. They're clearly not learning anything. So why are we going to reward them with a passing grade when they're not doing the work? And the answer that I got was that if these kids are failing and that comes up in their uh, in their progress report, 
it will generate phone calls. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll take them. I'll be more than candidates to why their kid is failing and what these people need to do to ensure that the kid doesn't. And of course, that wasn't an avenue that was open to me because I was just a contractor, basically. Yeah. And uh, they didn't even want to go that route with me. And then there were conversations about funding, and we need to keep our numbers in a certain um, in a certain range. And if we've got every student failing English nine, then it's going to impact that too. So it came down to we're going to pass these kids out of convenience and for money. Yeah. That's it. That's really what it boiled down to. And honestly, that was my last assignment as a substitute teacher because I just did not want to be in that environment anymore if that's how we're going to define education, okay? Yeah. I didn't want that. Now, there are a variety of homeschooling curricula out there. And yes, there are some that are purely secular and mirror well the rubrics and goals implemented in public schools. And it gives parents the choice of how to present their child's education in legitimate ways. And most homeschool curricula do have a handle on things like advancement and graduation requirements, all of which can be fudged. <laughs> and there's the problem. Homeschooling can optimize the learning environment for students with intellectual disabilities, mental health issues, and physical limitations. That's for sure. Mm. There are some kids that just can't hack it in a big group of other kids yeah. for various reasons. And for some of them, homeschooling is probably a good alternative. But that's for a very, very small minority. They exist, and I think that it should be considered under certain circumstances. But those circumstances are very few and far between. And it shouldn't be solely up to the parent either. It should be a professional decision that's made between people like teachers and counselors and therapists and people who have a handle on how best to serve that kid. But it shouldn't just be a parent pulling them out of school on a whim. You know, there needs to be a plan. Homeschooling does provide more time for family interaction. That's definitely a plus. And, you know, I, I think that family time is important. And I think that too few American families have the time that they should have to interact with each other and just spend quality moments together. So homeschooling and the flexibility with scheduling does facilitate that. So that's not a bad thing. Then there's the concept of meaningful learning. There's no teaching to the test or undue emphasis on performance on standardized tests. This, I think, is altogether good. Yeah. But usually not in the typical homeschool setting. There are no arbitrary minimal standards that affect funding for homeschoolers. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how many phone calls <laughs> something would generate yeah. or you know how numbers look on paper even though they're complete lies. You, you know, there's none of that with homeschooling. And there's also time for learning things like the arts and other things in real time with more loosely structured downtime. You know, things like trips to Mystic Aquarium. Yeah. I'm thinking about stuff like that, where in a perfect world, the parents want the kids to learn something about science, you know, marine biology, something like that, right. where there's good intent. And even just a family trip, across the country, let's talk about going and seeing the Grand Canyon and doing a report on the Grand Canyon yeah, based on firsthand observations and whatnot. I, I think these are all fantastic ideas. You know, the ultimate field trip, you can yeah. do this and you can do more with your quote unquote field trip 
than a public school can. Absolutely. You, you, you have all kinds of flexibility and you have all kinds of time. But again, these are not things that really encapsulate the experience of it for a lot of students. For the vast majority of students, these are not things that encapsulate the experience to any meaningful degree. And all of these things, of course, do have their counterpoints too. Academic flexibility can also lead to laziness, procrastination, and largely diminished education time. I saw that Mm. with the one person that I knew well who went through this. I saw that a lot. Some homeschoolers only receive instruction a couple hours a day and in extreme cases, only a few hours per week. I've heard about this too. It's like, I haven't done anything coursework related since like last Thursday and it's Wednesday Mm. or Friday of the following week. That definitely has an impact on how quickly you're going to advance if your parents are being even remotely honest about what you're learning. And yes, setting your own schedule is great if you have the discipline to stick with a plan, but many homeschooling parents flat out don't. And leaving too much discretion in the hands of the parents regarding when students advance through grade levels can lead to premature advancement or worse, an unduly lengthy period of time between promotions. Mm. This one person that I knew was only two years younger than me, but she was more than three years behind me in her education when we met. Okay, She was two years younger, but I was a senior and she was in ninth grade. So yeah, three years behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's the skewing of the timeline right there. Yeah. There are also circumstances where having the aid of special education professionals can be a decided advantage for students with intellectual disabilities over parents who have no experience dealing with these things on an academic level. Sometimes you just need the help of the professionals, regardless of what your kid's situation is. You know, you can homeschool them and utilize services through yeah. the public school system. There is that. You Mm -hmm. absolutely can. Having more family time can also extend the timeline at an unreasonable rate, and sporadic exposure to core concepts can lead to students falling further behind. It's great being able to take a vacation whenever you want, but what happens when you have to backpedal several weeks or more in the curriculum so your kid can relearn what they lost during that gap? And there are even more problems with homeschooling that many who decide to go this direction just don't consider. For starters, parents aren't teachers. They have no practical experience in the education space, and that's a problem. A lot of parents learn the curriculum along with the student. So it's like, I'm going to learn this, and then I'm going to teach it, which doesn't really work very well. And they almost never develop an understanding of the subject matter to adequately field questions. So learning then devolves into pointless rote memorization that is quickly forgotten when the test is over. Homeschooled kids are not, let me make this perfectly abundantly crystal fucking clear, homeschooled kids are not adequately socialized. They don't learn anything about diversity. Uh, Did I mention that the overwhelming majority of homeschooled kids are white evangelicals? Mm. And another part of this is that kids behave differently when their parents are watching, so you can't bring them to your homeschool group's social event and say that this is what socialization would look like for them under any normal circumstance. You can't equate what they do when they know you're watching with what they do when you're not. And I'm not saying that every kid is gonna go off and bully other kids and and misbehave and all of that. I'm saying that they don't get a chance to be themselves. 
when mom and dad are watching because especially in a homeschooling environment, there's so much pressure to adhere to certain standards and certain images and self-images that it's pointless to look at that and say, we're socializing our kids. No, you're supervising them and they're putting on a show for you. That's not socialization. I'm sorry, it just isn't. And kids don't learn how to deal with various social situations when they're not faced with them. And, right. you know, I know that there are a lot of negatives out there, but having exposure to these things and learning how to deal with them, I think is very important. You know, things like bullying, peer pressure, sexual pressures, all of these things are things that I feel like people need to have at least passive exposure to. I'm not saying every kid needs to be bullied, and I'm not saying every girl has to deal with her boyfriend pressuring her for sex so that they can turn into well-rounded individuals. But what I am saying is that seeing these things happen around them or to them can actually have certain benefits if they're prepared and they have parents who are willing to deal with these things on practical levels. Mm. I think that sometimes it's a good thing to have them exposed to these things at least or preferably, let's, let's say preferably in a passive sort of way. Another problem inherent with homeschooling is that kids miss out on major social milestones. No proms, yeah. no graduations, none of the things that are a normal part of the education process. And yeah, prom is part of the education process. It's a rite of passage, and kids deserve that. Yeah. And they deserve to walk across that platform and receive their diploma, not to just sit around the dinner table one night with a printout of a diploma that in a lot of ways means nothing and sit there and eat ice cream and cake with the family. No, they need the experience of being able to walk across that platform and say, I got through this, I made it. And now off to bigger, more complex, more difficult things, but I did this. And I think that they deserve that moment of hearing their name called and hearing people applaud for them and all of the things that go along with it that you don't get when you graduate from homeschool. Yeah. Another problem with homeschooling, it's expensive. You have yeah. to buy all the books and materials and many homeschool curricula, particularly Christian ed course materials, are very pricey, mm -hmm. okay? These people spend a ton of money on the course materials that would be provided by the public school system. And then there's the lack of organization aspect of things that we touched on just a minute ago. Public education centers on routines and procedures, and routines and procedures are good. Mm -hmm. Homeschooling is very freeform and can result in major gaps in learning, especially when parents take days or weeks off at a time to focus on other things. That's the point-counterpoint on the so-called advantages of this. Now is where things start to get dicey. Mm -hmm. Now, to say bad things happen in homeschooling families would be a gross understatement. Those bad things range from people graduating, big air quotes there, graduating from high school, not even understanding simple math or geography, to rampant abuse and even murder. And we will delve into that dark corner of this thing as we go. And it's not an overstatement. No. And it's not an exaggeration, people. Homeschooling enables child abuse on multiple and sometimes lethal levels. And I'm going to leave that there just for a couple of minutes because I think easing into that part of things is prudent. So let's start out with some of the lesser but no less disturbing effects of homeschooling on people who were put through it. 
The following are some accounts from former homeschooled students and the experiences that they had. This comes from Ranker.com, and it's just an article with a bunch of comments on people who were homeschooled describing the challenges of the real world. So I'm going to take a couple of the short of the, the more succinct ones here and just give you an idea of what it's like when you've grown up as someone who is homeschooled. Most of these were curated from Reddit. Remember that awkward part of your life when you experienced your first crush and you kind of made an idiot out of yourself because you weren't sure how to act around them? That's okay. You were a teenager. Everyone has awkward moments during their teens. Now imagine going through the same experience, but when you're 21 and supposedly old enough to know better. Ugh. Okay. That could be an outgrowth of homeschooling, or it could be an outgrowth of people who went through any kind of Christian education, because I knew people in college who had their first kisses at 18, 19, 20 years old, too. Yeah. This entire family was ill-prepared for the real world. My freshman year at a Christian college, one of my sweet mates was from a very sheltered home and was homeschooled. After freshman year, her whole family went off the rails. Her younger brother got married quickly, had a baby quickly, and got divorced quickly. Her sister got pregnant at age 18. Her parents divorced, and she got pregnant outside of wedlock. That family showed me how sheltering kids from the realities of the world can have a horrible effect on them. It pains me that my husband's siblings are growing up in the same environment. Without getting into specifics, yeah, I've seen a lot of this. Yeah. And from homeschool families. Yes. Mom teaches science without knowing anything about science. Not really a culture shock, but finding out the truth about so many things my mother told me growing up. The heat you feel when you rub your hands together is atoms being split. Um, I don't think you realize what splitting atoms does, mother. I'm pretty sure that it goes a little bit beyond your hands heating up. Yeah, just a little. Why not just look up friction in the glossary and go from there? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Oh, here's a good one. College wouldn't accept the homeschooled student's diploma. I had to get a GED because my college wouldn't accept the completely made-up transcript and diploma that my mother printed off the computer. Yeah, that's a problem. it's a thing that happens. And this homeschooled student still cannot find a way to connect with people. I was homeschooled until sixth grade, then at a tiny Christian school till 10th grade before ending up in public school for grades 10 through 12. Talk about throwing them to the wolves. Seriously. My main challenge was slash is socializing with people. Even to this day, I don't really understand others, their motivations for doing things, and their worldview is so foreign to me that I rarely connect with people on a personal level. This is why homeschool socialization doesn't work. Years of seclusion with my insane indoctrinated parents made me cynical and detached from the world. I never really matured on an emotional level, so I come across as cold or indifferent. Train up a child in the way they should go, right? Hmm. So I honestly think that I have had enough of that. We're going to move on from, from that part of things. And we're going to set the crosshairs now on the evangelicals because there is very good reason to with this. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals exploit and abuse the privilege they have to warp their children's brains and provide them with largely subpar educations. And many of the practices implemented by evangelical homeschoolers is nothing less than a network of cult communities that is set on the idea of separatism. 
and other ideas that we're going to go over a little bit later. Totalism is another one. These people truly believe that by hijacking their children's education, they're going to somehow achieve widespread influence on how education is done. The problem is that the way they go about it is so fundamentally fucked up. It's like anything else in this religion. It is morally abhorrent, damaging to the individual, and dangerous to the intellectual and emotional well-being of the victims. And yes, I will very openly and seriously refer to homeschoolers as victims because that's what they are. R.L. Stoller, or Stoller, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. I'm going with Stoller because it looks like dollar. R.L. Stoller is a theist advocate for victims of evangelical homeschooling who describes himself as, quote, a child liberation theologian and an advocate for children and abuse survivors. Once again, we have an example of how other Christians see through the facade of this vile sect of their religion and at least have the guts to sound the alarm on it. You don't have to be an atheist to recognize the wrong in what evangelicals do. And I have to say that I like a lot of what this guy has to say. He makes such a good atheist. Come on, man. Take the next step. You know what I mean? Anyway, he postulates that homeschool children and alumni are intimately familiar with religious trauma. Mm. That's a powerful thesis, and there's much, much more. Let's take a look at some of the points Stoller makes in his blog about this. He says, due to the intentionally deregulated state of homeschool laws in the United States, homeschool parents have nearly absolute power over what they can do and teach their children. Homeschooling has thus become a tool for what psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton has called totalism. Totalism is the end goal of authoritarian and totalitarian movements and organizations. It is the total control of human action and belief. By enabling homeschoolers to use homeschooling totalistically, Deregulated homeschooling has created the perfect storm for abuse and neglect to thrive in homeschooling communities. And no, I do not think that is overstated or alarmist. Not one bit. The modern homeschool movement was spurred on by a fascist white evangelical dumpster fire by the name of R.J. Rushdoony. He was a primary advocate for evangelical homeschooling from the 1970s forward, and he wasn't even remotely passive or secretive about his goals. His views spurred on the efforts of four people who have been described as the, quote, pillars of homeschooling. Bookmark that. Bookmark that for later, because that's significant. They are Michael Farris, Sue Welch, Brian Gray, and Greg Harris. The last one was one that I remember hearing about often. I wonder if it was his curriculum, his organization, that a certain someone was part of. It could have been. All I know is that that one... I, it, it's it's a common name, yeah. But it kind of it kind of sparked a memory. Stoller also writes it was ultimately Rush Dooney's vision that dominated. White evangelicals were desperate in the 1980s for a way to teach their children in the ways they wanted, free from secular non-white influences. Thus, they flooded the homeschooling movement. By the mid-1980s, white evangelicals had solidly commandeered the movement, becoming the most dominant group to choose homeschooling. This transformed the movement from a revolt against the institutionalization of schooling into a project to build a parallel Christian society. And no, that is not tinfoil hat alarmist bullshit. It's 1,000% true. By 1990, 85 to 90% of homeschoolers were conservative Christians. When Salon reported on homeschooling in, in the year 2000, all 
four pillars were evangelicals. And probably most importantly, the most powerful homeschooling lobbying organization, HSLDA, that stands for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, was run and continues to be run exclusively by white evangelical men. So what does the HSLDA do? Well, founded in 1983, the HSLDA has fought for decades to promote what attorney Michael Donnelly refers to as a, quote, minimalistic regulatory approach to homeschooling in the United States. In short, HSLDA believes homeschooling should be entirely free of any government oversight. This parental rights absolutism is a fundamental conviction that has roots in Rushduni's worldview of Christian Reconstructionism, a worldview shared by HSLDA founder Michael Farris, now president of designated hate group Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF. People, most homeschooling parents out there are taking their cues from someone who heads a Southern Poverty Law Center recognized hate group. Think about it. Think about that long and hard. And I, I hate to even admit it, but the rabbit hole just runs deeper and darker as you research further. Here's a little background on the ADF according to pro-lies.org. The Alliance Defending Freedom was founded in the early 1990s by a group of influential conservative Christian leaders, including Focus on the Family's James Dobson and Campus Crusade for Christ founder Bill Bright, alongside Alan Sears, who infamously published a book on the homosexual agenda. The group was initially conceived as an alternative to the ACLU, as the Christian right in the United States felt increasingly threatened by the LGBTQ and reproductive rights movements and the growing secularization of public life. Well, yeah, those are pretty big threats mm. when you adhere to a religion like this. Over the past 30 years, ADF has risen in the annals of American power, earning the distinction of, quote, the most influential group working to roll back LGBTQ rights in America. It has also been classified as a hate group, as we just mentioned. Over time, ADF developed a language of religious freedom to fight for the supremacy of the Christian right over others. In short, ADF claims that First Amendment protected religious freedom gives individuals a carte blanche right to discriminate against historically oppressed groups. Notably, ADF won a SCOTUS case, which gave a business owner the ability to deny services to LGBTQ persons because of his, quote, religious freedom. ADF's pioneering use of religious freedom has led to attacks on abortion access, birth control access, civil rights of LGBTQ people, and the separation of church and state. Over the past 30 years, ADF has grown rapidly. It now has over 3,000 allied attorneys who have sworn to oppose marriage equality, abortion access, and deny gender identities. As of 2017, this legal army, as Sears called it, has won 49 SCOTUS cases and donated over 1 million pro bono legal hours to fight for ADF's discriminatory causes. ADF also enjoys a large influence over the Trump administration, or enjoyed, this, this is now past tense, sending allied attorneys to cabinet jobs and federal judgeships. That's how deep the rabbit hole goes, people. And these are the people from whom most homeschooling parents are taking their cues. Just think about this and, and the implications of it. Evangelicals are taking their cues about how to 
educate their kids from a Southern Poverty Law Center identified hate group. And they want the government out of their way so they can mobilize and continue to promote ADF agenda. And guess what? They're succeeding. Mm. As mentioned, the government does next to nothing to regulate homeschooling in the U.S. And there doesn't seem to be any plan to change that policy of quiet non-involvement anytime soon. So what is one of the more damaging and disturbing results of all this? Stoller puts it this way. This lack of oversight has essentially created a loophole for child abusers. Child abusers can remove their children from public school during open child abuse or neglect investigations and thereby eliminate the chance that their children will ever be in contact with mandatory reporters again. And what that means is that there are certain professionals out there, teachers being one, school counselors being another, who are legally mandated to report anything that they hear about possible abuse on any level. You hear something, you have to say something. So these miscreants take their kids out of those environments so that there's no one to tattle on them. Okay? Back to Stoller's quote, because homeschooling has become the perfect way to isolate and hide an abused or neglected child from those who could help the child, it has become a breeding ground for crimes against children. Since 1986, there have been at least, at least 172 child abuse and neglect fatalities in homeschooling settings, suggesting that homeschooled children have a greater risk of dying from child abuse than other children. A 2014 survey of 3,702 homeschool alumni also found that around half, 51%, experienced childhood abuse, and a further 26% reported knowing another homeschooled child who was abused. And a survey of extreme cases of child torture conducted by pediatrician Barbara Knox in 2014 found that 47% of tortured children who had been enrolled in school were removed under the auspice of homeschooling. Homeschooling, Knox observed, appears to have been designed to further isolate the child. Mm Mm-hmm. What I find really alarming about all this is just how artfully the people who perpetrate these crimes on children cover their tracks. A Google search for homeschooling fatalities actually pulls up several apologist sources that run interference on the issue and try to convince the reader that it's not as big a deal as we're being told. Well, guess what? I have 172 known cold bodies that say that you're wrong. The Daily Beast said as much in a 2017 article. Research on homeschoolers is incredibly spotty, and what exists is mostly done by homeschooling advocates. And by that, they mean that the ADF and its army of lawyers are doing anything and everything that they can to keep things hush-hush. And since they're so hell-bent on running interference, I've got the links already sourced for you. This is just some of what's happening out there, folks. Here's an excerpt from the same 27 Daily Beast article. On September 9th, the parents of Hannah Williams, an Ethiopian teenager living in the state of Washington, were convicted of killing her. During the last year of her life, court documents show that she had lost almost 30 pounds as she was beaten, denied food, forced to sleep in a barn, and given cold outdoor showers with a garden hose. Much of the time, she was kept barefoot, although she was allowed shoes if there was snow on the ground. Sometimes, she was given nothing but a towel to wear. If Williams had been in school, someone might have noticed that she was underdressed and emaciated, but she was homeschooled, and so her parents 
fundamentalist Christians enthralled to a harsh disciplinary philosophy had complete privacy to punish her as they saw fit. She died naked, face down, in the mud, in their backyard. <sighs> Through the magic of editing, you didn't hear the spider's little breakdown just then. But just being confronted with those words was just a little much. And I'm going to throw just one more out there because, frankly, it's all I can take. This is from an article in The Guardian back in uh, 2015. Rashani Coley died in September 2013, aged 10, of severe abuse, which was hidden by the fact that Rashani was homeschooled for the last year of her life. Now, this doesn't mention the religion of the parents, mm -mm. but it does say volumes, as far as I'm concerned, about what the people who are behind this evangelical juggernaut of homeschooling are facilitating, okay? Yeah. So when uh, Rashani was two, she was sent to live with her grandmother and grandfather for several months while her mother, Nicolette Lawrence, was investigated by Oregon Child Protection Services for illegal activity and exposing her child to prostitution. She was never charged, but had earlier lost custody of her firstborn. This is one of the grandparents talking. She said, we got Rashani a lot of help. I believed she was on the autism spectrum. And just in the short time she was with us, we were able to help her a little with her language skills. In 2006, when Rashani was just three, her mother regained custody and moved to Texas to be with her new husband. The family later moved to Illinois. We tried to keep in contact, the grandmother said, but it was hard. They kept Rashani very isolated. For the next few years, Rashani's parents would be investigated for child abuse twice. In 2011, Rashani's stepfather was charged with beating her. He pleaded guilty and was placed under supervision, whatever that means. But Rashani was never taken into protective custody. Really? I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ. A year later, Lawrence pulled Rashani from public school in order to homeschool. In Illinois, the only requirement to homeschool is for parents to sign a document indicating their intent. There are no required home visits, no mandatory testing, no follow-up from social services. And for Rashani, this meant that there was no one to watch out for her. There were two more calls to the Illinois Department of Home and Family Services alleging abuse in Rashani's home. But when police investigated, they didn't even see Rashani. They had no idea that she had even lived there. In September 2013, emergency responders found Rashani dead from a blow to the stomach. At 10 years old, she weighed only 55 pounds. Neighbors were shocked. They didn't even know Rashani existed. No one had seen the girl outside playing. She was a ghost long before she died. And that is all that I can take of that. Yeah. You know, they never mention the religion of the parents. But again, this is the outgrowth of the Alliance Defending Freedom and their cohorts and the work that they're doing to keep the government out of homeschooling. Yeah. These are the things that happen. Are they extreme cases? Well, 172 kids that we know of? Yeah. I wouldn't call this extreme or out of the ordinary. Abuse is rampant. Yeah. In these communities. And the simple fact of the matter remains that homeschooling for a lot of sick, twisted people out there is a front for abuse. Yeah. And that abuse takes on many, many, many forms. In the case of someone that I knew and cared for deeply, 
it meant all kinds of mental abuse and physical abuse. I found out later. There was definitely physical abuse going on in that house too. There's so much more. We could go on for weeks about this and never scratch the surface of everything that's wrong with the majority of homeschooling families out there because the majority of them are in fact evangelicals. I do know of some that are homeschooling for, I'm I'm not going to even say better reasons, but certainly reasons that don't revolve around any of the stuff that we've talked about tonight. There are varying circumstances where people will opt for homeschooling. So if you're a homeschooler and you're doing it for reasons that actually benefit your child and you can show measurable benefit to your child for what you're doing, more power to you. For some, I think that it can work. And for some, I think that it's actually advantageous. But again, that's a tiny minority. So to end off this conversation, I'm going to pose this question. Is evangelical homeschooling a cult? To answer that question, one needs only look at the basic characteristics of a cult. So this uh, this came from a website. I, I took almost uh, word for word from... A website, I guess she's a blogger of some sort, but she covers these bullet points well. I'm going to mess this up, but it's in the show notes anyway. Jangelic.com. And this is in a blog post about characteristics associated with cults. And none of these are anything that I haven't heard or seen before. And it's very comprehensive. So let's take a look. Here are the basic characteristics of a cult and how homeschooling relates to them. The group displays an excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader and, whether he's alive or dead, regards his belief system, ideology, and practices as the truth or as law. Now, we talked about the pillars of homeschooling and the following that they have, and we've shown that evangelical homeschooling agenda's strings are being pulled by its members, particularly Michael Farris. Next, questioning doubt and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Well, homeschooled students are required to submit to authoritarian parenting and are not allowed to question anything that goes counter to the things that they are taught. They have it drilled into them from day one that the world is an evil place and that separatism is their only protection from the evils that exist in it. The village, anyone? Hmm. You know, it's the whole those we do not speak of thing. And it's nothing but farce. Then there's the mind-altering practices such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, or debilitating work routines that are used in excess and serve to suppress doubts about the group and its leaders. Daily intensive religious instruction as well as some of the core worship routines within evangelicalism on a broad scale mirror these concepts very well. Next, the leadership dictates, sometimes in great detail, how members should think act, and feel. And with homeschooling, it comes down to the parents to ensure that the way their children are expected to think and behave is adhered to as set forth in curricula that is tied directly to the pillars and their twisted worldviews. Next, the group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself. Homeschooled students are led to believe that they are better than their peers, that they have the upper hand in what they're being taught, how they think, and how they live. Next, the group has a polarized us-versus-them mentality, which may cause conflict with wider society. Do I really need to add to this? Fear of secular society is central to the evangelical homeschooling agenda and evangelicalism in general. Yeah. 
Next, the leader is not accountable to any authorities. Well, Michael Farris in particular has worked feverishly for years to suppress government influence on homeschooling with alarming success. Next, the group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify whatever means it deems necessary. In the context of homeschooling, this means creating a counterculture with the ultimate goal of creating a theocratic society that is built on the tenets of racism, homophobia, the suppression of science, and the elimination of secularization by force if necessary. Next, the leadership induces feelings of shame and or guilt in order to influence and control members. I remember hearing this line coming from a certain individual about their homeschooled daughter. We're trying to keep our daughter pure. And this was one of the reasons I was given for why this person was being held captive in an evangelical homeschooling environment. And whenever she exhibited any behavior that proved to be a threat to that goal, punishment was swift it was severe, and it was reinforced with verbal and physical abuse, gaslighting, and other forms of mental cruelty because they loved her so much. Mm. Next, subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with family and friends and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group. This is one of the results of pulling a child out of public school and cloistering them in a homeschool environment. Absolutely. Next, the group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. Proselytizing is common among Christian parents who work tirelessly to convince others to join their ranks and even belittle shame and look down on parents who still send your kids to public school? Really? In this world we live in? Why are you subjecting them to this? I mean, the, the, the guilting and shaming just goes on and on. Next, members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group and group-related activities and are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. You know, nearly all socialization for homeschoolers happens within designated networks of other homeschoolers and activities that give homeschooled children access or exposure to secular society is either frowned upon or outwardly forbidden in some circles. Lastly, the most loyal members, the true believers, feel there can be no life outside the context of the group. And now we bring it full circle. Come out from among them and be separate is the mantra for most homeschooling families and that life outside their cloister is literally dangerous. Now, you can tell tales about blood in the halls of American high schools all you want. Even with the ever-looming threat of gun violence in schools, you still cannot substantiate the notion that a public school is any less safe on average than your own living room. The living room is far less safe. Just ask any of the 172 children that we know of who have died at the hands of abusive parents who use homeschooling as a front to keep committing their crimes. And yes, there are plenty of positives to homeschooling when it's done for the right reasons. There are plenty of kids on IEPs and 504s in our schools right now who will never get the education that they need and would likely benefit tremendously from focused, truly individualized education plans and one-on-one -on -one academic instruction and support. The problem is that most parents are flat out not capable of providing adequate academic instruction and support. And... American homeschooling systems don't care about any of that. With about nine out of every 10 homeschool students being evangelicals, the motivation is not to provide better education, but to shield students from secular education that leads to secular thoughts and ideas that lead to things like free thought. 
With almost no government oversight, parents can literally teach whatever they want, however they want, at whatever pace they want, can fudge documents, report whatever information they want about their students' academic achievements, and will have the final say on what their kids learn as long as organizations like the ADF are out there running interference on government involvement in the process. And worse, abusive parents can use homeschooling as a front to eliminate the possibility of getting caught. Until there's a dead body involved, of course. Mm. Just take them out of the presence of any mandated reporters and abuse them until they die. Because until that happens, there's no one standing in their way or any threat that they will ever get caught. And need I even comment on just how dangerous the concept of totalism is for society? Well, guess what? This is what evangelical homeschoolers are working toward. They're using their own children as pawns to further their theocratic agenda, and they honestly believe that their separatist approach to education is key to the fulfillment of those goals. So what can we do about all this? Well, for starters, we can keep our kids in school, real schools. And as much as I detest what American education has come to, and I do, at the end of the day, students still get a secular education that isn't subverting their thoughts and perceptions of the world around them. We need to ditch the packets and get back to actually teaching. Yes, absolutely. But we also need to keep those classrooms filled. Work with your local school boards and politicians to enact changes where they're needed. Be vocal about the things you find wrong with the system, but picking up your ball and going literally home is not the answer. If you want to give the white evangelical machine that runs most of the homeschooling systems in this country less fuel for their arguments against public education, work to make the system better. And I'll say it again, working with your local school board and government are great places to start, but we also need to install people in government that won't pander to the likes of Michael Ferris and his army of lawyers constantly stifling government involvement with homeschooling. A simple vote for the right candidate can blow the whole thing wide open and put end to at least this faction of white nationalism by holding people who choose to remove their kids from public schools in favor of homeschooling accountable for what they're teaching, how they're teaching it, and monitor what students are actually learning. If we only use the power that we hold in our hands, we wouldn't be in this mess. There are still more of us than there are of them. Yes. Unfortunately, we're in it right now, but the good news is that we can definitely do our part to clean it up. It starts with knowledge, and I hope you agree that we've imparted plenty of that to you tonight about this subject. It continues with proactive action that includes working to fix the problems that exist within this system and doing so by all the means I've already suggested. Together, we can bring about change. We can save lives, and we can help the most vulnerable among us our children have a fighting chance of getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. 
www.ghostbusters.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. <laughs>